case. Hope not hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope not hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backwards thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news crate. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Martin here from Hope Not Hate. This week, I'm excited to share with you a lecture conducted by our very own Joe Mulhall at a Holocaust Memorial Day Trust event in the House of Lords on the subject of the alt-right and how to combat it. This was recorded during a public event, so please excuse some of the background noise. I, I spend my days looking at the international far right and, and looking at and attempting to understand new threats. And there's unfortunately a number of them I could have talked about today, but I wanted to talk about one that you've probably heard lots about in the newspapers called the alt-right and perhaps just drill down a little bit on what it is and why I think it's slightly problematic. And, and, and I'll finish by talking about how I think it affects certain issues around anti-Semitism, the Holocaust and genocide denial. So I'm sure you've all heard the term alt-right. It's been kind of pervasively used in the newspapers for a few years now. Um, and it's been used from everything from kind of nasty, right, really right-wing Republicans all the way through to the most extreme neo-Nazis. It's an extremely broadly used term. Um, it's been called a kind of brand new phenomenon that's never been seen before, and it's also been called nothing but a, a rebranding of traditional Nazism. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what I think it is and why I think it's important. Um, so, I mean, it's bad form to read on these things, but I wanted to kind of read you a very brief few lines on what I think it is in terms of a definition, how we might define... Oh, thank you. Um, get pudding while I do it. That's nice, lovely. Um, no, so, I mean, it's essentially in terms of what I would understand the alt-right is, is that it's a very broad international set of individuals, organisations, uh, primarily organised online, although we are seeing, of course, offline uh, manifestations, and their core belief is that white identity is under attack by so-called social justice warriors uh, and pro-multicultural and liberal elites using political correctness to undermine Western civilization and the rights of white men. Now, I'll come on to the white men because it is, it's very important. Put simply, we're talking about a broad international far-right movement. International is the key here. This is not a singular domestic movement. It's not based in a single country. We are talking about a movement that operates across borders and intervenes in individual countries from different countries. Um, because it's so broad uh, in terms of what they believe, there's lots of arguments within it and it's hard to define, but they do have a core set of beliefs, uh, uh, things that unite this very disparate movement. Um, and that is that they understand it to be a left-wing, liberal, democratic, cultural hegemony in Western society that has to be destroyed. So that's what they unite around. They dislike that supposed progressive alliance, and they dislike the rights which are derived from that. So gay rights, women's rights, um, ethnic minority rights. And if they pretend that they like those rights, they'll say that they don't like the movements behind them. So they might say they have no problem with gay rights, but they don't like the gay movement. Or they don't have a problem with women's rights, but they don't like feminists. I'll come on to the kind of feminists bit in a second. Um, it's very difficult to trace as a movement because it doesn't have a single starting point. It it's, doesn't have a Marx, it doesn't have a, a kind of key ideologue from which we can draw its all of its ideas. It's much better to really conceptualise this new far-right movement as a conglomeration of existing movements that have come together and the means by which they operate create this new far-right threat. So, broadly speaking, I would argue it comes from three places, and it's very briefly I'll touch on each of them. Um, where they get their ideas, how they operate, uh, and kind of where a lot of their ideology comes from. Broadly speaking, a lot of their ideas actually... To People just kind of generally see this as an American movement. This is what we see in the news, the alt-right is an American movement. And then there's a lot of truth to that. 
But actually, where their ideas often come from are actually from a very European tradition of far-right thought. Some of you may have heard of it, some not. It was a thing called the European New Right. It came out of France in the late 60s, or the Nouvelle Droite, as it was called. Uh, French thinkers like de Benoit, Gilliam Fay. And what they talked about was not traditional Nazism as such, although they were in many ways fascistic, but they talked about things like ethno-pluralism. So rather than saying racial separatism, they talk of ethno-pluralism. Rather than talking about repatriatism, they talk about remigration. But in many ways, these ideas are very similar. But the thing that the alt-right, in terms of this modern far movement, has, has adopted from these uh, European ideas is this notion of a metapolitical approach. This is not about forming political parties and winning power by, through the ballot box. The way that the alt-right is affecting us now, and I'll come on to this, is by altering the culture of society, and it's consciously done. For those of you who are kind of old-school leftists, it's kind of a right-wing Gramscianism. This is about changing institutions, changing culture, changing what's acceptable to talk about in society. They're not going to set up a political party and win an election. That's not how they will do this. So this is kind of the way where one of their key wellsprings comes from, these European ideas. Second, kind of, if you're seeing this conglomerate of movements, is the American alternative right. Very broad movement, generally speaking, the non-Republican American right that ranges from everything to white supremacists, the Klan, neo-Nazi groups of all descriptions, uh, the radical non-conservative tradition in America. And then finally, all of those, those two things come together, these kind of radical right or these far-right groupings with these European metapolitical ideas come together in a thoroughly modern sense and what we call online antagonistic communities. Now, everyone would have seen this. These are not necessarily left or right-wing, but these are communities that are reactionary online communities built around various interests that they engage in exclusionary, antagonistic behaviour online. This could be trolling, um, this could be creating offensive memes, this is espousing hatred online. There's no kind of political, everyone on all sides is doing this sort of stuff. But when you combine that means of operation online with these far-right ideas and these far-right groupings, where they converge is what we should understand as the alt-right. This is what this movement is. Um, and on top of that, we have dozens of tributaries that come into it, all of which contribute ideas and all of which operate on the ground in each country and online in each country. Some of you will have heard of identitarians, a big increasing threat in Europe. Uh, also, we now have a group in the UK called Generation Identity, which uh, the Home Office has, has recently just banned some of the Austrians coming to the UK. Um, young, uh, one of the, I'll come on to the issue of, of how young these groups are, but young, tech-savvy, image-conscious, um, and again, you won't hear them say explicitly racist things in an obvious way, but they will talk about ethno-pluralism. They will talk about, which essentially, of course, is the separation of ethnic groups, is what they want. Um, you have white supremacists, you have right-wing alternative media. So any of you who have had the misfortune of spending too much time on YouTube will have seen these endless videos by these people. In the UK, we have actually some of the biggest alt-right YouTubers in the world. Paul Joseph Watson, some of you may have heard of, some of you may not. This is a guy who has millions of views, based in South London, in Battersea, in a flat, creates content which is viewed all over the world, hundreds of millions of views on his YouTube channel. This is the guy that came up with a conspiracy around Hillary Clinton being ill during the election. Here we have an example of a guy based in South London creating content which is being viewed in America and being talked about on Fox News. This is an international movement. This is the way it operates. Um, in the wake of the Westminster attack... 
terrifyingly, if you look at the most interactive with individual on the whole of Twitter in the following two days, it was Paul Joseph Watson. Most people never heard of this guy. And yet in the wake of an attack on Westminster Bridge, he's the most engaged with person in the UK. And ironically, actually, or sadly, the most watched video on the attacks was by Tommy Robinson from the English Defence League, formerly of the English Defence League. So if we're talking about the influence that these communities had, uh, it can be terrifying. The biggest, most engaged with person and the most viewed video were both uh, alt-right individuals. We have paleoconservatives feeding into this movement, right libertarians, peculiar movements like neo-reactionaries who uh, kind of rea- uh, reject enlightenment values, uh, right-wing national anarchists, those survivalists who are very big in America, and we're seeing that sometimes in Europe, these rather peculiar characters that keep baked beans under their bed and all these ones. Um, and then, really importantly, we have the Manosphere, which I'll touch on very briefly in a second, which many people will have sadly heard about for the first time after the attack in, in Canada last week. Um, but I'll come on to that. So we have this movement which is essentially bringing together all of these various different strands and they're all operating internationally and online. They all believe around this same core idea that there is a threat uh, from kind of progressive values, rights, uh, women's rights, gay rights and the like. There is one clear or two clear divisions that splits this whole movement. This is generally called the alt-light and then the alt-right. While they all agree on the what's the problem, the alt-light very much perceive it as a cultural threat. So we're talking about cultural problems or, you know, the alt-right see it in a racial sense. You know, sometimes they, of course, overlap. But generally speaking, that's a useful distinction to make. But while race and racism is really important to this movement, one of the things that's massively overlooked here is that much more than perhaps some of the traditional far-right movements, although they all had this element, is anti-feminism and anti-women is central to this movement. Uh, I'm sure any, any of the women who have social media here will have probably come across some of this stuff already. Um, but this is really central to understanding the alt-right. It's an anti-feminist movement at its very core. Um, central is this notion of a return to traditional patriarchy, um, traditional gender roles, the sanctity of marriage in its traditional sense, and this is often articulated as what they call trad wives, as in traditional wives, gender roles. Um, one of the mottos of one of the big groups that we see called the Proud Boys, again, it's mainly an American group, this one, but there are some branches in the UK, they talk about how one of their key slogans is, we venerate the housewife. Um, and on the harder end, it's just explicit women hatred. Uh, at the harder end, the websites ban women, uh, so they won't be allowed to enter the forums, they're not allowed to organise, they're not allowed to join the groups. Um, generally speaking, there'll be a per- pervasive understanding that women shouldn't vote. Um, and it sounds like I'm talking about kind of rather kooky extremist yeah. groups and strange things, but if you look at some of these websites, one of the terrifying things about the alt-right is if we look at the traditional far-right in the UK, we're very lucky at the moment compared to some, you know, our, our continental friends in Europe. I would say in Europe, bad day for the vote. But um, <laughs> in terms of domestic far-right in the traditional sense, we've got dozens of tiny groups. We don't have a united far-right. Electorally, they're in the toilet. Um, the British National Party is all but gone. In terms of membership of traditional groups, we're probably below a thousand. We have a dangerous resurgence of more terrorist activity recently, but in terms of kind of an electoral threat on the mainstream, it's tiny. And yet, if you look at the traffic to these websites, these big alt-right websites, primarily based in America, the UK is the second provider of traffic to almost every one of these websites. And we're talking into the thousands and the tens of thousands. And we don't know who these people are. Then, second, after, sorry, second after America. Now, of course, generally speaking, that's because it's Anglosphere and it's, mm. uh, you know, so there are some caveats there. But 
we're sending tens of thousands of people. In fact, if you look at something called Stormfront, a lot of, you know, the oldest neo-Nazi website has just been thankfully kind of shut down. But um, we had over 100,000 members in the UK from that. And who are these people? Um, so we have to move on from looking at the traditional far right and saying how, what, what votes the BNP get in Backparking and Dagenham, what vote do they get in Stoke? That's not how we need to measure the contemporary far right's threat. It's not operating like that. Um, so I guess I, I, I don't want to be too long, so I'll finish briefly on anti-Semitism as kind of in terms of... And there's some really, really worrying trends here as well. Um, broadly speaking, there's a complex set of uh, attitudes towards the Jews within the alt-right, as it's such a broad movement. At its most moderate end, uh, because anti-Islamophobia is its key tenant, you will find those that ostensibly argue that they're very pro-Israel, um, and they will argue that Israel is a defender of Western values and that Jews uh, are attacked by Muslims, many of which, of course, is, is true, but um, they will use it as a political tool. So on that end, this is a, a dividing line within the movement as well. Like, you have culture and race, you have uh, ostensibly pro-Jew and anti-Jew. However, on the more extreme end, uh, it becomes extremely anti-Semitic, and Holocaust denial is, is a huge problem here. Um, the reason that this is such a problem is it's a new, it's a slightly new form of Holocaust denial. The tropes are the same. You will see the traditional tropes of Holocaust denial, but we are seeing a new generation. Many, we're, I'm writing a, a kind of book at Hope Not Hate on the moment about changes in Holocaust denial. And if you think about the big names of denial, your David Irvings, your kind of, your Rasniers, these, these traditional characters that wrote books that were very kind of pseudo-academic, they filled lecture theatres, that's very much declined in the last 15 years. They can't fill the rooms they did. And yet you'll have tens of thousands of people on Holocaust denial websites now. The ability to find Holocaust denial content is easier than ever before. Um, the days of having to be within the far right and sign up to newsletters or sign up, buy books for mail order lists. They're gone. You can get it all online for free. You can buy it on Amazon. We did a campaign quite recently, not around freedom of speech. These people have the right to publish this stuff, I guess. But we were finding the most extreme Holocaust in our literature, possibly ever published, and it was being sold at Waterstones, uh, Foils, WH Smith. They didn't know they were doing it, of course. It was just their algorithms pulling in publishing content. Um, some of them pulled it, some of them didn't. But the access to this content is easier than ever before, which is deeply problematic. Um, and the problem with the alt-right is, as a movement, is it's so young. This is a far-right movement based in its 20s and 30s. The traditional far-right and the traditional Holocaust community and Holocaust denial movements had been ageing for a very long time. If you went to, like, I had the misfortune, of part of Hope Not Hate's job is going to as many events as possible to try and work out what's happening. And for a long time, the events were just increasingly elderly people in duffel coats. Um, what we see now in the alt-right is we're seeing people in their 19, uh, teenage years, 20s, looking at and accessing Holocaust denial content online. And, of course, coming into the far right. The, the, this movement has managed to bring youth into the far right in a way that certainly the British far right has struggled with for a very long time. Even the BNP didn't really manage it. The issue here is um, many of the people that are involved in this movement were born after 9-11. Right? So their historical touchstone is not the Second World War. It's not the Holocaust. This is ancient history to them. And you can see it on their forums and their websites. They talk about the Holocaust like they would the Napoleonic Wars. It's, it's ancient history. They have no, they, it means nothing to them. And so you have this perfect storm whereby 
part of this online antagonistic community thing, I say the purposefully, the idea is about being purposefully offensive. And they would argue from a political sense, being offensive with a view to deconstructing political correctness, for example. And what's more offensive than denying the Holocaust? And yet simultaneously, they don't care about the Holocaust because it's ancient history. So they've landed upon this thing that is upsets everyone they dislike, the establishment, old people, all the things that they, they're against, um, while simultaneously actually for them being ancient history. And they have the means by which to do it. They can sit in their room in Stoke-on-Trent and send Holocaust denial to a Jewish senator in America, or they can send it to someone in Israel or Germany or France or anywhere in the world or Australia, and vice versa. If you look at the last French elections, uh, Marine Le Pen even released a video just before the second round of the elections saying... Thanking the online militants for their help. And underneath it was people from all over the world who had weighed into that debate from all over the world. So uh, this kind of causes a problem. So I'll finish there, really. So just to kind of summarise, what is this new far-right movement, the alt-right? Um, key to say it's genuinely transnational. It will not work if we seek to combat it on national grounds. It will not work. Uh, they pick up and they move and they pick targets. They mobilise around issues anywhere in the world. Um, this allows them to find content. If it's about they find a school in Burnley with halal chicken nuggets, this will be talked about on a website in Australia four hours later. This works across borders. Um, it's primarily an online movement, although, as I say, there are offline groupings. It's overwhelmingly male, preoccupied by masculinity and anti-feminism. It's mostly young, 20s and 30s, if not younger. Problematic, it's anonymous. Most of the people that we will be able to know about are actually not normal in the movement. Most of them are anonymous, they, uh, which allows them a, a level of un anonymity which has no social cost to their activism. The idea of going to, say, a, a Holocaust denial event 10, 20 years ago, the chance of being photographed or talked about in a newspaper or, or being opposed, now you can sit in a bedroom with an anonymous avatar and deny the Holocaust and there's almost no social cost whatsoever. So the bar has been lowered. It's a very broad movement that ranges from the fringes, uh, groups like Bright Bart and the like, fringes of the kind of right, centre-right, all the way through to the most extreme ends. Uh, it primarily operates outside party structures. So as I say, we're not, if we sit around waiting for them to form a political party that we can beat at an election, it'll be too late. Um, it's a conglomerate movement with dozens of tributaries, so it's complex. Um, it's difference between the alt-right and the alt-light, race versus culture. It draws on traditional European pessimistic philosophy, so it's Bengler, Schmidt, Heidegger, Nietzsche, all that sort of stuff. Um, and its iconography is very strong. We've all seen the pictures of the frogs. We've all seen the pictures of uh, the kind of this iconography and the memes they use. They share through the internet. They go like wildfire. Um, so, really, just to finish without depressing us before our puddings, I mean, the alt-right demands an international response is what I would say. If we're going to do anything about this, it doesn't make sense to do it just on national borders. These things happen internationally. Um, if we do it on our own little worlds, we'll lose. And in some senses, without being kind of too pernicious, we have to find a way to recreate social cost to this sort of activism. We have to find a way to mean that there are repercussions. And I mean that in the most democratic sense. Um, there has to, we have to find a way that doesn't mean that there is zero social cost for this sort of activism online that makes people's lives so difficult all over the world now. Um, there are good signs, there are, there are lots of good news, but this is an interesting movement and it's one that we haven't understood properly yet and hopefully uh, I think it will have repercussions for lots of our work around this table and lots of the stuff we do. Um, and until we better understand it and how it's operating and moving, I think we'll struggle to deal with how we can maybe counter it through counter-narratives and the like. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and check out our dedicated website on the international alternative right. We'll stick a link in the episode notes.